as uh, we worship God this Labor Day weekend, um, I do need to, to share with you, many of you probably already know, um, but Harry Pitts, uh, our first full-time uh, minister here at Lebanon Christian Church, uh, did uh, die on Friday evening. And, um, and so we don't, I don't know arrangements yet uh, for that. Obviously, we'll be communicating that through various channels when that comes. But uh, we just wanted you to be aware uh, that that happened. Um, Harry was hired as the first full-time minister here when the church launched uh, several years ago and served faithfully as the full-time preaching minister, then senior minister for, I think it was 22 years. And then even after that, continued to serve this church faithfully um, as a part of our, our missions team and even beyond. And even in these last several years, as he and Gail's health uh, wasn't cooperating with their dreams and hopes and visions, they continued to serve faithfully uh, wherever they were, whether that was Crown Point or, or Homewood. And just Harry leaves, along with Gail, um, uh, we need to be praying for her and the family, and we'll do that in a moment. But Harry leaves just this incredible legacy of faithful, uh, faithfully preaching God's word, faithfully serving the church. And a, a big part of what a Lebanon Christian church is, uh, who she is today, uh, is because God used him in some mighty ways. And so we want to be praying over the family, the children, uh, Gail, uh, in this time of transition and their time of sorrow. Um, I want to lead us in a prayer for them now. God, uh, we thank you. I think of the psalm that says, uh, how precious in your sight, God, are the death of your faithful servants. Um, and that psalm catches us probably off guard. How can that be precious? Uh, but God, we know, um, anyone who knows Harry knows that his hope was not in this world. It was in you and in your kingdom. And he leveraged his life to help people find you and experience your kingdom now so they could experience it in its fullness when you make all things new. And so, God, you know that. And so when people faithfully serve you, it is precious because now they are reunited with you to be absent from the body is to be present with you, your word says. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you for the faithfulness of Harry. We thank you for the faithfulness of Gail as she walked alongside and served so faithfully in ministry with him. We thank you for the words that have been preached and taught at Memory Hall, uh, in our own building here, in the lobby at Crown Point, even in rooms at Homewood. And God, may we aspire to be faithful with the calling you've placed on our lives as we even have witnessed his faithfulness. God, I thank you that he and Gail have leaned in and carried burdens when probably it felt like no one was there to carry theirs, and they kept going. They willingly uh, submitted and surrendered uh, to see people come to know you. And so we just thank you for Harry's life, and we thank you for Harry and Gail and the ministry here. And we pray, Father, that you would comfort Gail uh, in her grief now, remind her of the joy of our inheritance, even in the grief of what we lose. Uh, God, I pray you would be with the kids, that you would be with Dana and Mark and Scott and, and all the grandchildren and 
spouses and great-grandchildren, that you would help them as they navigate this season. And God, I pray that all those good things that have come because of his ministry here would continue, that our heart for the world would continue to grow, that our heart for the vulnerable would continue to grow, and that we would continue to lean into your truth, believing that it is um, our authority and our guide. And it's in your name we pray and trust, the name of Jesus. Amen. How many of you would say that you have a great imagination? Anyone have a great imagination? Um, I have read some studies, interestingly, that in our digital world that uh, our imaginations are kind of depleting a little bit. We don't have the space to think and to dream, or we don't give ourselves the space to think and to dream. But I want to invite you to imagine something with me uh, over the next couple of moments. I want you to imagine a people divided. I want you to imagine those who once shared common interests, allegiances, values, hopes, and dreams divided. Imagine that those divided, while committed to their opposition to one another, are characterized by similar desires and pursuits. Although divided, they desire prosperity. Although divided, they want wealth. Although divided, they want to get and to experience more in life. And many, not all, but many, are committed to obtaining this at all costs. There are those who find no shame in taking advantage of the weak, those who will resort to violence, those who will prioritize their own prosperity over the greater good. I want you to imagine in this divided nation that leaders, those who possess the power and the influence to change, seem to be the ones who, instead of helping, only set the pace for corruption, selfishness, and more. I don't know what you were imagining. I'm guessing it wasn't too hard for you to imagine. Perhaps you imagine America. And you'll see in a moment that's not exactly who I was talking about, but I think probably many of those descriptors fit. Um, how do we make our way in even our current world where we feel like there's so much antagonism, there's so much hostility, there's so much hatred and biting and fighting, and it seems, I don't know if like me, but it seems like every day there's a new law or legislation or opinion or event that only threatens to divide people more and more and more. How do we find our way forward? The good news is, is that we are not the first nation on earth to experience this. It's not even the first time in our nation's history that we've gone through seasons like this. In fact, if we look out at the world and we look out at history, we see that this is a pretty common experience in civilizations throughout time. In fact, this is an ancient problem. We can go back to the very beginning, the very origins of our world. We can go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. What do we find? Two people at odds with one another. We can move on from the very first sin and we can find their own children, Cain and Abel, at odds with one another to the point that one of them takes the life of another. We can fast forward into the early years of, of God working his story out through humanity and we can find a people who in the days of Noah are characterized as only doing evil, that every inclination of the human heart in that day was only evil all the time. We can look to the, the early days of God's people as he delivers them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and we can find people who are fighting with one another and fighting with the people God has appointed to lead them. 
We, we can look at their life in the days of the judges and the days of the kings, and we can see people fighting with one another. We can see people rejecting God's messengers, the prophets, and hurting one another. And that story just continues on and on and on throughout history. What we experienced in America in 2022 is just something that's been experienced in civilizations throughout history and throughout time. So how do we find our way? How do we find our way when it feels like this may be one of the darker seasons in our nation's history? How do we find our way? We find our way by looking to God's truth. And the beauty of God's truth is that God's truth gives us a light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it, is what scripture tells us. We look to people who have been where we are and we see how God led them. And so while you may have been imagining America, the story I was writing and hoping you would imagine was something different, and that's the story of Israel. Because before division and difficulty was ever our story, it was Israel's story. God used the prophet Micah to speak into Israel's darkest moments. You may not be as familiar with the prophet Micah, Uh, Micah was a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied during the 8th century BC. He prophesied and his words went to all the people of Israel. See, at that time, Israel had been divided, the nation of God, the the people of God, the ancestral people of God had been divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom that took the name of Israel and the southern kingdom that took the name of Judah, but they're all God's people. They're all part of his kind of redeemed and rescued people who he wants to write his story through, but yet they're opposed to one another. Uh, you may recall that Saul was the first king, and then David followed, and David Solomon, David's son Solomon followed, and Solomon had a son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam didn't like to take advice, and so then the kingdom was divided, and Rehoboam led part of God's kingdom, and I believe it was Jeroboam that led the other part of God's kingdom. And yet these two people, part of the original whole, still had the same ancestral beginnings. They should have shared the same values. And yet their stories kind of parallel in that they move towards the things of the world and the pleasures of the world rather than God's heart. And they experience their own difficult times, even like we do. And into that, God spoke through a prophet to call them back, to call them to what was most important, to call them to what was essential. Uh, If you would, and you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to to Micah chapter 6 with me. a passage that for some of you who've been following Jesus a long time will be very familiar. It's a passage for those of you maybe are just starting to follow Jesus that you'll want to highlight and hold on to. It's a passage I think that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus that can help you see God's heart for you and God's heart for humanity. In, in the chapters leading up to Micah chapter 6, uh, Micah, God through his spirit, speaks through Micah. We learned that in Second Peter, that the prophets did not just like come up with their words on their own, that God's spirit was working in them and through them. So God is using Micah simply as his mouthpiece, as his kind of megaphone to declare his message. And kind of the rhythm of Micah has been, there are these really harsh words of judgment and chastisement. This is how you failed. This is how you've wronged me. These are the evil things that you've done. And sometimes they're described and with great detail. And, and then he'll, he'll paint a picture of hope. And then some more words of chastisement. And then more words of hope. And then more words of chastisement. And more words of hope. And by the time we get to Micah chapter 6, um, God's kind of laid it all on the table. And he he's kind of gives us this, this courtroom scene. 
In Micah 6, verses 1 and 2, he summons the earth as a witness. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Uh, powerful picture. God summons the mountains and the everlasting foundations of the earth as witnesses. Why would God summon the foundations of the earth and the mountains of the earth as witnesses? Why would he summon the earth to bear witness to to what he's declaring to Israel? Well, the earth preceded Israel. They've been there. The earth's been there the whole time. The foundations of the earth, the everlasting foundations, the mountains have been there. They've witnessed every misdeed, every good deed, everything that Israel has ever done. You can't find a better witness than someone who's witnessed everything that's ever happened. And so he summons them to bear witness. This would be similar to you and I um, using the phrase, what if the walls could talk? Maybe you've heard that before. What if the walls of your home were summoned as witnesses? What would they tell about you? About the conversations that have taken place? Maybe about the fights that have been had? Maybe about the behaviors that have happened behind closed doors? It's kind of a scary proposition, isn't it? Like, what if the walls could talk? And that's what, that's what God is saying. I'm gonna summon the earth, its foundations, its mountains, to, to be my witnesses. They, they know and they see everything. And God has already shared in the earlier chapters how Israel's heart has drifted far from God and the misdeeds that they've done. And so he just kind of summons them as his witnesses. And he's kind of setting the table saying, here's what you've done. Um, You really don't have a way out of this. You have no rebuttal because uh, the mountains and the foundations have witnessed it all. But God has a question for them that gets to the heart. He he says to them in verse 3, He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Uh, This is what we would call a rhetorical question. Uh, It's that moment when a parent uh, has kind of been fed up with some behavior in their children and they say, you know, listen, like how have I made life that hard for you? Like that's not a time for the kid to say, well, you, you didn't get me the newest iPhone, right? It's the time for you just to listen, like just process. And so God is saying, how have I burdened you? How have I wearied you is what the English Standard Version says. How have I hurt you through what I've done? And before they could ever answer, even if they wanted to, he shares just a few fragments of his faithfulness. Not the whole story of his faithfulness, but a few fragments of his faithfulness. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. Like I rescued you. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. That's verse four. Beyond even just rescuing them from slavery, he sent Moses to lead them. He gave them a faithful leader. He didn't just give them one. He gave them Aaron, Moses' brother. He gave them Miriam, Moses' sister. Like he was faithful to them. How have I burdened you? Like I rescued you from Egypt. I gave you leaders. If that's not enough, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered when, when, when the Moab king was trying to have prophecies and curses declared on Israel, God actually twisted and ended up cursing Moab in response. Like, like I have been there for you, is what God says. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, another story of faithfulness in the pages of the Old Testament. 
that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God says, I've got, I've got the mountains. I've got the foundations as witnesses. They've seen how you've lived. They've seen how your hearts have drifted from me. They've seen your division and your difficulty and your pursuit of sensual pleasure and sin. And, and you don't really have a rebuttal because the, the mountains and the foundations have witnessed this. And I just want to know, God says, how have I hurt you? How have I weird you? What have I done that makes you want to reject me and reject my purposes and reject my plans and reject my, my truth? And the answer is nothing. God has only ever been for them, not against them. So how should they respond to a God is for them? How should they respond when their hearts have drifted far from him? And Micah gives voice. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Does, does God want burnt offerings? Maybe calves a year old, which have been a choice offering? And then like some hyperbole, some exaggeration kicks in. Would, would God be pleased with thousands of rams? Maybe, maybe one spotless calf is not enough. How, how about I just give him thousands of rams? There's been a huge, um, like, costly offering. Like, like probably too, too large for anyone in Israel to imagine. If that's not enough, would God be pleased with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? God is for us. God wants this for us. God has rescued us. God has redeemed us. God has purposes for us. We have strayed from him. What is it that God wants? Does he want sacrifices? Does he want us to, to show up and, and give some more, to, to give a better offering? Maybe the, the calf, maybe the rams, maybe the rivers of olive oil aren't enough. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How about I just give you my firstborn kid? Maybe that's enough. And Micah says, no, it's, it's not what God wants. Verse eight, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. God doesn't want your sacrifices. What does God want? What does the Lord require of you? Isn't that the question? What does God want from them? They've neglected him. They've strayed from him. What does he want from them? The foundations of the earth, the mountains as witnesses. What does he want from them? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Hosea would say that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. God desires the heart of his people, the loyalty of his people over sacrifice. Jesus would echo those words, Matthew chapter 9, verses 13 or 16, uh, that he desires mercy, and not sacrifice. See, see, God is telling Israel, listen, you're in this dark day. You're divided. Your, your leaders are leading you far from me. There's this beautiful, not beautiful, uh, beauty is the word. It's more of a powerful picture of how the leaders would um, tear people apart with their actions. Like he says, like you're being led astray. You're, you're, you're living apart from me. And you want to know what I really want from you is not more bulls and rams and cows and olive oil. I didn't want your firstborn kid. I want your heart. I want you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with me. I love how the ESV says it, um, at least the version that I have. I don't know if there's an updated one since then, but it says, I want you to do justice. I want you to do what is right, and not just what is right by anyone's standards, but what's right by God's standards. I want you to do what's righteous. 
I want you to do what God would do. I want you to act in a way that he would act, even when it means people turn away from you, even when it means it's hard, even when it means you may lose something. God says to them, I want you to act justly. I want you to do justice. I want you to do what's right. He says, I want you to love mercy. If you were with us three weeks ago, we were in our friendship series, looking at the friendship of David and Jonathan and seeing what we could learn from their friendship for our own friendships. And we spent a whole week looking at loyalty because something that shows up in the friendship of David and Jonathan, it talks about their covenant they made and the covenant loyalty they had and how, how, how Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And a word that's used there that's repeated throughout the Old Testament in various contexts is this Hebrew word hased that gets translated for this covenant loyalty. It speaks to this loyal love of God, this, this loving kindness of God is how it's translated sometimes. Here, it's love, mercy, but that's the word said. if you look in the, the Hebrew scriptures. He says, I want you to do justice, I want you to act justly, and I want you to exhibit a loyal love to God and to others. A loving kindness to God and to others. I want you to act justly. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to walk humbly with God. One, one of my favorite kind of obscure passages in Scripture comes from Genesis. There's a genealogy of people leading up to Abram. And it says that there was a man named Enoch who walked faithfully with God. And then he was no more. That God took him away. But that phrase, walk faithfully with God, describes not only Enoch, but other servants of God in the Old Testament. And it's this, this phrase that describes someone who intentionally and intimately lives in pursuit of what matters to the heart of God. They live in obedience to him. They trust him. They follow him. And so as the Israelites fight through this dark age in their history as they're divided, as they're pursuing as a collective whole sensual pleasures and pursuits and moving farther from the heart of God. God says, listen, like, what have I done to deserve this? Like, I have done everything for you. What do I want from you? Not your sacrifices. I don't want your heartless sacrifices. I want your heart. I want you to continue, no matter what, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with me. I think you can see why these words could be so important to us in the United States of America in 2022. Because when we live in our own culture, the division is nuanced differently than it was in Israel's day. But if we're honest, there are still many things that pull people who would claim to be children of God, followers of Jesus, away from the heart of God. If your walls could talk, if the mountains and the foundations of the earth were summoned as witnesses, it would tell a story. And what does God want from you in response? Does he want your sacrifices? Does he want you to, to, to show up to church three or four times a year because you feel guilty? Does he want you to, to show up to church maybe once a month because you feel guilty? Does he want you to show up every week if you've done something really bad? Does he want you to maybe put a little bit or a lot of money in the offering plate or, or the offering box or, or to give it digitally online? Does he want you to, to you know, um, you know, serve a little bit to make yourself feel a little bit better? Does he want you to stop and give that homeless guy five bucks to make yourself... Does he want sacrifice? Or does he want your heart... God still wants us to act justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with him. Now, some of you would say, well, Jesus never said that. Jesus never repeated Micah's words to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. And I would point you to these words of Jesus where Jesus says that he has come to fulfill all the law and the prophets. I would also point you to these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, because if you have ears to hear, they sound awfully familiar. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is approached by a religious leader and he's asked, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And here's how that situation unfolds. Verse 34, Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, in the law, there were 613 commands, some that were do this and some that were do not do this. Of all the 613, this guy knows them inside and out. Jesus, what's the greatest? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. One of the gospels adds strength to Jesus' words here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Act justly. Do what's right. What does it mean to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, that all that you have is committed to living life his way. Isn't that doing justice? Isn't that acting justly? Well, what about love mercy? What about loyal love and loving kindness towards other people? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, so loving kindness towards God, but what comes next? To love your neighbor as yourself. We love others as God has loved us. You want to talk about walking humbly? intentionally living and, and following Jesus? Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will obey my commands? And what about these words in Matthew chapter 28? We often call them the Great Commission. Uh, they're the final commandment of Jesus. He tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded them, and that he'll be with them to the very end of the age. Walking humbly? How about you as a disciple trust and follow me, and you go out and you help others intentionally come to trust and follow me? We see that the words that God gave through Micah, uh, to Micah, and came through Micah, that the people of God in their own difficult time, what they needed to focus on, there's so much they could get, get, get bogged down. They could get bogged down in this debate or, or this pursuit. But you know, you want the clarity? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with me, and God still champions that to us to this day. You can get bogged down in pursuits and debates, who's right, who's wrong, making sure your voice and your opinion is heard, or you could say, you know what, God, I know that these times have come and gone in the history of our world, and I'm gonna commit to what you want. I'm gonna act justly, I'm gonna love mercy, I'm gonna walk humbly with you. I'm gonna love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I'm gonna love my neighbor as myself, and I'm gonna commit to your great and final commandment to go into all the world and make disciples. I can't control the other junk, I can't control uh, nuclear plants in Ukraine. I can't control bombs flying in the air. I can't control legislation in the House or the Senate. But I can control through the power of your spirit my life that I could act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. 
Will we be people who act justly? Will we be people who do what's right? Will we be people who not just do what's right in other people's eyes, but do what's right in the eyes of God? Will we do righteousness? Will we say, God, what is your heart? What is your heart for the world? What is your heart for the vulnerable? What is your heart for the oppressed? What is your heart for the hurting? Will I do justice? Will I stand in the gap? Will I be an advocate? Will I use my time, my energies, my finances, my, my wisdom, my mouth to come alongside and do right, to act justly? Who are the vulnerable? Often the youngest among us and the oldest among us. What justice needs to be done on their part? Who needs to be their voice? Who gets to lead the way in a world where human trafficking, we've been talking about this for decades now, and it continues to escalate people trading in human beings, selling human beings for uh, the clothes that we wear in our bodies and selling human beings against their will for sex. And like, who's gonna be the voice? Who's gonna do justice? Who's gonna love mercy? Who's gonna extend loving kindness? Who's gonna be the ones who extend the love that's reflected in Jesus' life? Who's gonna willingly come alongside those who are hurting and broken, some by sin, some from life circumstances, and enter into their mess to help them find Jesus? Who's going to extend the grace in our world when so many want to cancel and speak in hostile ways? Who's gonna be the one to forgive? Who's gonna be the one to love mercy? Who will be the ones to walk humbly? Who will be the ones when there's all these competing philosophies and all these competing worldviews who will say, no, I'm going to stick with God and his truth. Even when I don't agree with it, even when I don't understand it, I'm going to stick with his words. I'm going to walk humbly with him. I'm going to obey. What does it look like to walk humbly with God? How do you foster that intentional, intimate connection with him? We've talked about this before, like spiritual disciplines are the way to walk humbly with God. Spiritual disciplines are these, you might call them holy habits, these behaviors that, that, that Jesus even participated in to keep his connection with God. We, we remain in his word because we believe that his word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We believe that his words are God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Like, his words guide us, so we want to read his word. We practice that spiritual discipline. We overcome our fears and our discomfort in reading his word. Yes, when you start to read the Bible for the first time, it can be hard, it can be difficult, it can be cumbersome, but I would have you know that most of that probably is due to the enemy not wanting you to read his truth rather than your inability to read and understand his truth. Because as I've shared before, we will, we will learn about things that we don't understand. We will read magazines, we will read blogs, and we will get familiar with a language that we don't understand and be able to, to gain ground in our knowledge in other areas. Why do we not want to do that with the Bible? Yeah, there's some names we can't pronounce. Yeah, there's some concepts that's good to have someone walk alongside you and help you understand. But his word is our truth. It is our light. You want to walk with God? Walk in his truth. I'm gonna walk with God and another spiritual discipline we see in the life of Jesus is prayer. Speak to him, talk to him. He is there, he is available. Talk to him when you're standing outside at the bus stop. Talk to him in the car, talk to him in the shower, talk to him in a journal. Speak to him, pray, listen to him. Seek solitude with him. In our hurried age, very few of us will ever find ourselves 
okay with being alone. But something happens in the solitude and something happens in the silence. We actually have to hear our own thoughts. And when we begin to hear our own thoughts, we can begin to ask the Spirit to help us with those thoughts. And it can be incredibly uncomfortable, but we begin to listen and hear how God wants to lead and what God wants to do. Practice rest. Practice rest, Sabbath rest. Be bold and courageous enough to create margin in your life to be still and know that he is God. See, striving literally is how you translate the Hebrew there and know that he is God. Stop giving into the excuses of this is how I have to live in this world. No, you don't. You can stop and you can be still and you can stay connected to him. You can walk humbly with him. Serve. Be generous. What an incredible spiritual discipline to be generous, to, 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 to bless other people with your life and with your wealth and with your time. And as we do this, as we act justly and love mercy and walk humbly, we find ourselves navigating a perilous world. We may not know what's coming two months from now or five months from now or even tomorrow, but you can know what the Lord requires of you, and that's to act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. To love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. To go into all the world and help other people to be disciples as you have come to be a disciple who trusts and follows Jesus. Growing up in my house, um, my parents would often tell me I need to take the high road when it comes to situations. They meant to do the right thing even when it's difficult. And I would suggest to you that the best way forward in our current day is to take the high road, and that's Route 68, Micah 6.8. It's the high road. Uh, one of my favorite YouTubers right now is a woman named Nora Lee. Uh, her YouTube channel is Itchy Boots. Don't watch it right now. Um, but uh, uh, her, her name is Itchy, or her show, her channel is Itchy Boots. Her name is Nora Lee, a 33-year-old Dutch woman who just kind of spends her life driving across countries and continents on her enduro bike. And her goal is to see as much of the scenery and the landscape as possible. And uh, prior to COVID, she started at the tip of South America, and her goal is to ride from the tip of South America all the way up to Alaska. Well, COVID stopped her journey short around Ecuador. And just this year, she picked back up in Ecuador and made her way up through Central America. Uh, we picked up with her journey around midway through Mexico. She spent the last few weeks in the United States, and several times she talked about how surprised she was because she's out in the West, and even in August in the West, as she's riding through uh, the United States, she's at elevations in the, you know, like 13, 14, 15, 16,000 feet, and there's snow, and she is just amazed at that. And so several times on her journey, she'd be on her dirt bike on a, she didn't like to take highways, she'd be on a dirt track somewhere, and she'd come up to snow and she couldn't go anywhere. So she'd have to seek advice. Okay, what's the better road? And sometimes um, through her GPS, Sometimes through other people that live there, they would help her find that route. And always with determination, she could find the route through the difficulties. If you and I will seek the guidance of his spirit, that's our GPS, his word. If we will surround ourselves with people who also want to follow him, no matter where we find ourselves, they can help us find the right path. And that path will be Route 68, that we can act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. Let's pray. God, thank you 
I thank you for your clear and direct truth. God, I know the conviction that I feel as I am so tempted in our difficult time to get caught up in the what ifs or the what thens or get caught up in a debate that ultimately won't take me any closer to you. God, I thank you for the clear truth, and I pray, Father, on this Labor Day weekend, as we move from summer into what we typically view as fall, that you would give us the, the perfect picture of where we need to go, that above and before all things, we would choose to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. Amen.